Tonight, we're coming to the, one of the more well-known, if not the most well-known, of the sayings that Jesus said while he hung on the cross. I, I told you that uh, last week that Jesus had been, he had been on the cross for about three hours. They nailed him to the cross at about 9 a.m. and up till about noon. Um, he had been there for about three hours when that, what we talked about last week, when he entrusted Mary to, to John and John to Mary. He'd been hanging there for about three hours. It was about, it was about noon. And the scripture tells us that after he said that, at about noon, um, everything went dark. Luke tells us that the sun's light failed. And it was dark like night in the middle of the day. And it was like that for three hours till from noon to three. And not only was it dark, but scripture tells us Jesus didn't say anything. He just, he just hung there dying. I mean, you just think about it. Think, put yourself in that situation. Just imagine how long you would have been standing there watching a man die, you know, hours and hours and hours. And he didn't say anything for three, for half of that time, three of those, those last three hours, he didn't say anything. Then finally he did. And when he spoke again, he cried out with a loud voice and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you imagine that? Three hours Later, I mean, it had been, it had been three hours since he had said anything. It probably, if you were there, if you if you knew Jesus, loved Jesus, were there at the foot of the cross, watching your friend, your Lord, your Master, your Son, die on the cross, and he had not said anything for three hours, that probably felt like an eternity since you had heard his voice. You know, and, and him, him entrusting Mary to John and John to Mary, that probably felt like forever ago that he said that. You know, probably felt like a different day altogether. It's dark now. It wasn't dark then, dark now. And you might, you might be, if you were standing there, you might begin to wonder, were those, were those his last words? Or is he ever going to say anything again? And just about the time you think that maybe I've already heard his last words. <laughs> and three long hours had gone by and it was dark like night outside. Jesus doesn't just say something. It says he cries out in an, in an agonizing voice. And then he, and he quotes what would have been very familiar words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said it in Aramaic, and it caused some to misunderstand what he was saying, but of those who did understand, it would have been an amazing statement. Before we think about that statement any closer, let's, let's read the passage for a little bit of context. We're going to be in Matthew 27. This is also told in, in, at the end of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 15, um, but we'll focus on Matthew's account. So Matthew 27 for context, we're going to begin in verse 27 and read through 47. So 20 verses, 27 through 47 of Matthew 27. <laughs> A lot of sevens. All right. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together... A crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed 
in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him. Saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him. And took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes back on him. And led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. And they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them casting, by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. The two robbers who were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders, mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, and errant word, authoritative over us, sufficient for everything we need to know for faith in you, the salvation of our souls, and the pursuit of godliness from now until Jesus comes back or we die first. And it's necessary to us, for without it we don't know you. And it's clear every time we open it, we can understand what you're saying to us. So for this reason, Father, please give us eyes to see the truth that is in this passage. Give us minds to understand it. Give us hearts to embrace and not just know the truth, but to love it. Love you through it passionately. Love you more than our sin. Love you more than ourselves. Love you above all things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here's how, um, like I said, this is one of the, this is probably, I'm going to say this is the most, you said, can you remember anything that Jesus said on the cross? This is probably the one that people will say. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's deeply significant. It's one that I, I think has been misunderstood. A little bit, at least. I think in an important way. Um, so I want to think about it carefully. And here's how I want to do that. I want to think uh, first, um, why does Jesus say this? Because we'll, say, we'll see that he's not just saying some random thing. He's quoting a very important Old Testament passage, one that would have been very familiar to them. But what would have moved him to say, to not just uh, 
uh, not just quote scripture, but quote this passage and not some other one. But secondly, because of some misunderstanding, I want to say, what is Jesus not saying when he says this? What is Jesus not saying? This is, like I said, this is one of the most well-known passages of of what Jesus said on the cross. And and it's one that's been prone to being over-interpreted, okay, if I can put it that way. The ways that are problematic, I think there's good intention behind it, but I want to be clear on what he isn't saying when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then come around finally and say, okay, what is he saying? What is Jesus saying? Because it's a powerful statement and it, and it should give us every hope and confidence in what he was doing on the cross for us and for our sins. It's a really beautiful thing. So let's begin and think about first, why does Jesus say that? After three, why after three hours of silence does Jesus say this? And like I said, you can imagine all the people at the foot of the cross that day. And you can imagine maybe being one of his, one of his disciples, one of his friends. You know, and it, it, like I said, it had been three hours since he had said anything. And you might begin to wonder, have I already heard his last words? And it, at some level, if you're his friend, and if you've ever been around a loved one dying, you might have been comforted just to hear him say something again because you know he's not dead yet, you know. Um, but when he spoke, um, it would have dawned on him, thankfully he's still alive, my friend. And then it would have dawned on him, wait a minute, what did he just say? It might have taken them a minute because you can imagine being at that scene as it's happening. You might not be quite as clear-headed as if you were just sitting at home. But maybe once they collected themselves, it would have dawned on them that he's not just saying something, he's quoting something that I'm familiar with. And, and, and he's quoting scripture, and there's a plug for scripture memory, that um, even as he hung there dying, that's what instinctively came up. But he wasn't just quoting scripture generally, he's quoting Psalm 22. He's quoting the very first verse of Psalm 22. And that would have sounded familiar to him, to quote the first verse of that psalm. Why would it have been familiar to quote the, the first verse? Because as they gathered for worship every week in the synagogues or in the temple, in every service where they gathered, they either prayed or they sung the psalms. That was their prayer book, their, their, their liturgy, their, their songs, their hymn book. And, and very often, the first line is what they would have identified that psalm by. Um, it would have been like, that's their, they didn't have titles. They just went by the first line. So it was like, it would like, take your psalter and open to my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, that's like the title of the psalm. And it, and it would have drawn their, their minds, because they'd done that so many times, it would have drawn their minds back to that whole psalm. More on that in, in just a minute. But the, it would have taken back to that psalm. And, there, and just, just that, that first, just quoting that particular psalm, that, that particular psalm, Psalm 22, regardless of, of the particulars that we'll talk about in just a minute, just that psalm communicates, is, what it communicates is the suffering of Jesus on the cross for our sins. Because there are different kinds of psalms. There, if you, psalms, 150 psalms, there's all kinds of different ones. By the way, I think it's next, next in the fall, if you come back for CBS, we're going to, next CBS in the fall is going to be the Psalms. We're going to study through some of the Psalms. But there, there's Psalms of, of praise, 
there's psalms of thanksgiving, there's royal psalms, there's wisdom psalms. Then there's also psalms of lament. Psalms of, of lament, of sorrow and of lament. And that's, that's the category that Psalm 22 fits in. It's, it's that kind of psalm. Obviously, when the first words are, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not hard to tell that it's a psalm of lament. But quoting a psalm of lament in that moment, rather than a royal psalm or a wisdom psalm or anything else, communicates by that very fact that he is lamenting, he is sorrowful, he is suffering for us. And that was prophesied too. And, he's, and, he's, and he took on human flesh, like us in every way, yet without sin. So of course he's sorrowful. Of course he's suffering. Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53 describes in such incredible detail what Jesus endured on the cross. And of the things that that says of him, Isaiah 53 says that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And the very next verse, that surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Think of what weight he was bearing on the, on the cross. Not only the physical suffering, but the fact that he was enduring the judgment of God for our sins none of which was his own. He had prayed just hours before, not even 24 hours before. He had prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane three times, pleading, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And we would pray that same thing twice more. And I don't know if that means literally twice more. He prayed it three times. Any more than I, if I know that like uh, Paul prayed three times for that thorn to be removed from his flesh. If that's literally three times. Or if three is symbolic of he prayed it over and over and over again. What cup is he talking about? Let this cup pass from me. What cup? The cup of God's wrath and justice against our sin. The Old Testament very often described God's justice or wrath using the imagery of it being a cup or a bowl that's being poured out. That's not just Old Testament. The book of Revelation. You've got the seven bowls that are being poured out. Jeremiah 25.15, God announces through through the prophet Jeremiah, that he's about to pour out his judgment on his people for their rebellion. And it says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, He said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. The cup of the wine of God's wrath. That's the cup that Jesus is talking about. If this cup pass from me. Because this cup is about to be poured out on Christ. Before we go back, by the way, to Matthew 27, we're here in Matthew 26 where he's saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Can I just point something out to you? I try to do this often I can. When you're studying your own Bible, I want to give you tools to, to do it yourself. When the gospel writers wrote the gospel, um, they... When, they, when they, they had all the stories, when they compiled it and put them, put the, arranged the stories just as they would, they arranged things uh, to make theological points. Not, not just that 
not just that each individual story would make a point, but the way the stories are strung together would make a point. Do you get what I'm saying? Uh, like, not only um, does this, yeah, not only does this particular parable t- teach me something, but the fact that this comes before it and this comes after it also teaches me something. And we see that going on here in, in Matthew 26, which is why I'm telling you, whenever you read it, something in the gospel, make sure you know what neighborhood you're in and, and, and read what comes before and read what comes after. Um, because when he says, when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if, if it be possible, let this cup, this cup of your wrath, let it pass from me. Uh, this is right after, I mean right after, he had just instituted the Lord's Supper with his disciples, right? Where he had given them a cup to drink. Did he not? And said, drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, that string of stories, give them a cup to drink. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, right side by side, teaches us that Jesus Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so that we could now drink the cup of God's peace and his forgiveness through his blood shed on a cross for us. Think about that. But because that's what he was doing on the cross, the strongest lament that he knew to cry out were the words of the psalmist, which in reality were his own words spoken through the psalmist, through David. Jesus' whole life had been suffering for us. His whole life. You know, his whole earthly life of obedience in a broken and fallen world. And the book of Hebrews says that throughout his life he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. But this this moment on the cross in Matthew 27, this moment on the cross was the climactic moment of that of that suffering. And the only words after three, three hours of silence, six hours of suffering on a cross, the only words that he knew that could put expression to what he was experiencing was Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was he saying? What was he saying? Let me first say something about what he's not saying when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hopefully that will help us be clearer on what he was saying. When Jesus cried out in the words of Psalm 22 and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was he saying? Some have latched onto that word forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they read more into that word than perhaps is warranted. And is meant. We're going to jump in the deep end of the pool for just a second, okay? Here we go. Like what? Sometimes people would take what Jesus was saying there, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, and build an image in their minds of what was happening. That somehow God the Father had abandoned, or turned, his, turned away from God the Son. As if there was something within the Trinity that was happening. You see? And I would caution against reading that much into what Jesus was saying. For a couple of reasons. First, 
I'll, make, I'll hopefully make clearer in a minute that I believe that when Jesus quoted the first verse of Psalm 22, he was intending to take us back to that entire psalm. And that, that I hope we'll talk more about that when we come to what Jesus was saying. But the other reason I would caution against um, reading that much into it as if it's something happened between God the Father and God the Son within the Trinity is because that is, that is a weird and practically heretical view of the Trinity. Um, just think through it. If that means that when, what Jesus, when, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If that means that God, within the Trinity, God the Father did something to God the Son, it would mean, it would imply, think of what that implies. It, it, it implies that God the Father possesses a wrath that the Son doesn't. Does that make sense? The Father pouring it out on the Son? Well, doesn't God the Son possess the same wrath and justice as the Father? I mean, why? There's something going on there. And, it, 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 and for that matter, doesn't the Holy Spirit? Don't they, don't they share the same attributes? Don't, don't they possess, not, 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 not just similar to each other, the same attributes? So if God the Father is, is wrathful against sin, so is the Son and the Spirit. And this isn't, so this, this, that isn't right because our triune God is one God in three persons. And the three persons share the identically same nature. One can't have an attribute or exercise an attribute that they don't all have or exercise. And one, one person in the Trinity cannot, cannot act in a way that the other two aren't also acting. It's not like one can go over here, one can go over there, one can do this while the other are doing that. One God. So when Jesus hung on the cross, it wasn't bearing merely the, the wrath of the Father. He's bearing the wrath of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not merely my Father, my Father, my God. And, it, and so what, am I, what I'm getting at is in some mysterious way and I'm going to say it's, it, it leaves it mysterious I'm fine with that I would, I would, I, I would expect to say that if, if, if I come to the end of my life unrepentant and I bear in my body the, the justice of God that it, it's going to be dealt out in a, in, a, in a way that I never foresaw in this life there's mystery there to be sure but in some mysterious way, the wrath of, of the Father of God poured out on Christ was the, was the same wrath that Christ, by virtue of His divinity, also shared in. And so the Spirit as well. So there was no fissure between Father and Son. There's no fissure within the Trinity between Father and Son. Because that's, not, that's an impossibility. God cannot cease to be God. God cannot divide His own nature. So God the Son was not even, even temporarily separated or divided from the Father or turned in the opposite direction, whatever that's supposed to mean. God is spirit. Furthermore, we don't, want to say, we don't want to say that Christ merely suffered for our sins in His human nature um, because the person of Jesus Christ is two natures in one person, God, human and divine, two natures in one person. And it's not as if his natures do anything. His divine nature does something. His, his, his human nature does something. No, Christ, the person, does something. 
And so when Jesus suffers, the person of Jesus suffers. And the person of Jesus might die for our sins by virtue of his human nature, but in some mysterious way, the person of Jesus, both divine and both human, bore the weight of our sin. It's a mystery in some sense to say exactly what transpired. Right? I'll just go ahead and say it. It's some, it's some mystery to say exactly what transpired in the counsels of God in that moment that he hung dying on the cross for our sins. But we shouldn't try, and it's not, there's no, nothing wrong with trying to understand what happened in that moment. But in trying to understand it and trying to describe what happened there, we shouldn't try to describe it in such a way that it causes us to misrepresent our triune God or to rep- misrepresent who Christ is. Christ suffered for our sins, and he did it in such a way and to a depth that we don't have perfect language to describe, right? So what else can we say? What is Jesus saying? Well, like I said, um, he's quoting Psalm 22.1. And that's a song title. And many of those who heard that, it brought to their minds that whole psalm. And it's if I, if I said to you, it would be like me saying amazing grace and almost instinctively you think something like was blind but now I see. You know? You can't help it. And when you turn back to Psalm 22, um, by the way, when, you, you should do that in your own Bible study. If they quote an Old Testament passage, hit the brakes, turn back to it. You know, When you, when you look at Psalm 22, you get a fuller sense of perhaps what Jesus was saying here. Psalm 22 is a psalm of David, and it's interesting. It's a psalm of lament, like I said. But it, if you read it, if, you, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, and you, so you've read First and Second Samuel, and you're familiar with David's life, David who wrote this, and then you read this psalm, and you go... I don't remember anything like that happening in David's life. It doesn't seem to be describing anything in David's life, even though David's writing it. It, it in fact, seems to be describing the life of Christ. More specifically, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. How so? For example, verses 6 through 8. Psalm 22, 6 through 8. But I am a... Worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They, they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They wag their heads. That's a weird phrase. We don't say anybody wagging anything. But it's a noteworthy word. Tuck it away. They wag their heads and look at their ridicule. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Did we not just read in Matthew 27, verses 39 and 40, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, and saying, you who would destroy the temple in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So yeah, they're wagging their heads, and look at their, look at their, uh, their mocking in verse 43 of Matthew 27. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him, for he said, I'm the Son of God. 
That's exactly what Psalm 22 says. They wagged their heads, and he said, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. That's exactly what they did to Christ on the cross. Exactly. David writes in Psalm 22, verse 16. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. What? Crucified between two thieves with nails in his hands and feet. That's Christ. That's not David. Nothing like that happened to David in his life. David, that, that is Christ speaking through David a thousand years ahead of time. Not only that, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That is literally fulfilled in Matthew 27, 35. They cast lots for my clothes. Literally. When David wrote Psalm 22, it was Christ speaking through him. And so when Jesus quotes Psalm 22:1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You have to understand that verse. Why have you forsaken me? You have to understand that verse in Psalm 22 in light of verse 24 in Psalm 22 that says of God, He has not despised or abhorred or uh, the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden His face. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. So whatever, whatever, why have you forsaken me means, whatever forsaken means, it at least has the room in it for verse 24. It, says, it doesn't include God hiding his face or not hearing Christ when he calls. Whatever forsaken means, according to verse 1, it includes he, he hasn't turned his face away from Christ and he still hears him when he calls. That's what it says. So that when in that cry of despair, when Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that cry of despair, it was also a cry of hope. It's a cry of hope. Just like this psalm says, there was no separation in the Trinity, but Christ was being left in that moment, being left to suffer for our sins, but even though he was going to suffer to the point of death, he was not suffering with hopeless despair. Even Hebrews 12, 2 says that he endured the cross to the point of death for the joy that was set before him. Right? Not on the cross, but on the other side of the cross. That's why Psalm 22 doesn't, it doesn't end with hopeless despair. But with a confession of covenant hope. Of the joy set before him. Look at how Psalm 22 ends. Near the end of the, of the chapter. And we'll end with this. Psalm 22, 27. Because he's, he's confident that God is going to hear him when he cries out. And what's going to happen when God hears him? All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. What? If... Does anybody know? I mean, just I'm not shaming you if you don't know this, but like, I know, I know, like last year at some point in CBS, we talked through the covenants of Scripture. Anybody, was anybody here for that? Seems like a long time ago. Talked about the covenants of Scripture, and 
all the families of the nation shall worship before you. Does that sound familiar to, to any, any of the covenants? Do you, anybody know? Yeah. Because what, what did God, sorry, I, I got really excited over that. I'm so excited about that. What did, what did God promise to Abraham? Go from this land to the land that I will show you. I will bless you and make your name great. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It means in one of your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And that is Christ, a thousand years ahead of time, speaking through David, saying, this death that I'm going to undergo, I'm going to cry out to God for help. He, he will leave me to die on this cross, but he will raise me on the third day. And it's through that, that this promise made to Abraham is going to come to pass and all the families of the earth will be blessed. Everyone, Jew or Gentile, who puts their faith in Jesus receives the blessing of Abraham, that is the forgiveness of their sins and the hope of eternal life. That's a beautiful thing. So just know that when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was real sorrow in that moment. It was real lament but one with a happy ending, you know? And that's a good word. Let's pray.